Learn more about the albums you love with Dissect, a music analysis podcast hosted by me, Cole Kushner, a lifelong musician and composer. Each season of Dissect dives deep into a single album, forensically dissecting the music, lyrics, and meaning of one song per episode. Our newest season is covering Tyler the Creator's Igor, a beautifully honest album in which Tyler explores love, communication, masculinity, and truth. Listen to Dissect today only on Spotify, because great art deserves more than a swipe. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Hey there. You know that Hulu has movies, right? Well, if you didn't, we're here to tell you Hulu has movies. Hulu has acclaimed movies like All of Us Strangers starring Paul Meskel and Andrew Scott, Suncoast starring Woody Harrelson and Laura Linney, and Cat Person with Amelia Jones and Nicholas Braun. So head over to Hulu if you like movies because you guessed it, Hulu has movies. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I wanna wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com. And joining me on the other line, the Speaker of the House, it's Andy Greenwald! <laughs> I was going to vote for you. I was going to vote for you. Oh, okay. oh no. 2023, oh. the year of our big L. And we are back. The Watch, another one. More shows, more talk about shows, more talk about the town that makes those shows. Um, and it's so great to do it with my best bud, Andy Greenwald. It's great to see you. I haven't podcasted in a, I don't know, 10 days, something like that. So I'm ready. Uh, I'm are ready you, to rock. Are you ready or are you like Tyrese Maxey's jump shot? Are you a little flat? No, like, I'm like, fine. I'm fine. And that you just got to play yourself back into shape. It's okay. But I, I don't. I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm slinging right off the bench. Did, did you look over my list of demands that I faxed just before the holidays about if I were to continue on as speaker of this podcast? <laughs> like, or, or continue to allow you to be speaker on this podcast some of the things that I would require such as like the ability to recall you at any time like did you did you agree to my terms I did I did I feel like if I have uh my ideology is such that you know it's like if you if you guys aren't with it then then I'm happy to step aside and let some more um you know progressive voices take over that's fine that's terrific that's yeah. very very that, that that is that really speaks highly of you we have a lot of stuff to cover yeah, Greenwald. Um, so today, a lot of stuff like, went down. We will put uh, a little punctuation mark at the end of Fleischman is in trouble, which we've been chatting about on and off throughout its uh, limited season run, limited series mm-hmm. run. But I kind of wanted to catch up on what we were what we were checking out over the holiday break. You know, Do you something mean ha- in terms of TV and movies, or like the very kind note outgoing Arizona Governor Doug Ducey wrote for <laughs> Katie Hobbs. And do you think he would have written a similar note to your girl? Carrie Lake, had she been seated had she, in her rightful... <laughs> yeah. she rightfully been seated? Right. 
Are you, were you salty when you saw that Doug did that? Doug sold out his his fellow Repug? Look, man, we, we, leave no stone unturned. Carrie's not out of it yet. Okay. <laughs> incredible. I really wanted to bring this bit still, into She still has I'm a couple sorry. more filters to throw on her on her Zoom camera, if you know what I'm saying. Andy, um, where do you want to start? So I, I had a couple of things that I watched over the break that I thought would be useful to chat about, not only because I'm recommending them, but also because... Their uh, entries into larger conversations about about TV and movies right now, but I thought you know one of the cool things that you did, one of the things I oh. admire you always for is because you just wow. marched to a, you marched to the beat of your own drum, and <laughs> yeah. right as the ninth inning, as people were getting ready for the ninth inning on the uh, ten best movie ten best shows of the year list that we did with Sam Asimov, the episode we did yeah. with Sam, you were like out of fucking nowhere. I'm throwing the English on my list. Yeah. And I was just like, this this guy, he never ceases to surprise me. He, I, I believe you did say this guy. I think you said it in the moment before and we hit record. I wanted to say that, like, kind of inspired by that, you know, I, I did a little bit of, of uh, spelunking in the late year slash stuff I missed in 2022 of shows over the course of the quote-unquote break that we had where I was just like, kind of like, oh, what did I miss? What did I miss? Let me check this out. Let me check that out. And I fell in love with the show. I fell in love with the show so hard, it probably would have made my top 10 had I watched it. What? At that time. And that is Rogue Heroes. Are you up on this? I'm asking you that. Like, I know you are up on this because I've been texting you about it for nine days. But this is is, um, Stephen Knight, who obviously did Peaky Blinders, is an incredibly prolific screenwriter, did Taboo, is is responsible for the upcoming Great Expectations. He did Locke, right? The greatest movie ever about the concrete pour. He wrote uh, a hysterically so bad it's good movie called Serenity with, with... I believe Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway, is it? Oh, that's amazing. He wrote that movie. Yeah. Um, so th- this show, Rogue Heroes, I would describe as a funnier Peaky Blinders or like an erudite Guy Ritchie kind of. That's the tone that sort of it gets hit. It stars Connor Swindoll, who people may know from Sex Education uh, and Vigil, the, uh, the, the submarine show that I, I loved last year as well as Jack O'Connell from The North Water and Alfie Allen from Game of Thrones and Sophia Batella, who was in... She was the mummy. She was in, She was the mummy, but she's been in... I mean, she was in Climax as well, and she's in a bunch of stuff. She's in the upcoming Zack Snyder movie and Dominic West in the kind of like... Uh, you guys just tell me where to show up. Like, <laughs> what, a like third, what a third act. He, he is honestly in like a, a couple of interior scenes. Like he just does this in this on the same set and, and just knocks it out of the park. It is about the formation of uh, the British SAS in the North Africa campaign in World War II. And it is just been absolutely the most like rewarding entertain. Not rewarding makes it seem like I'm changed as a person. It just confirmed a lot of things that I wanted in my life, which is yeah, basically yeah. funny, action packed genre TV that is told with like absolutely like top notch professional aplomb. And I gotta say that Connor Sundell is an incredible leading man. Like th- this this guy, I wasn't really up on him. But he should play James Bond. I, I don't know. Like he's really, really great in this. So it does the same Peaky Blinders thing that has somewhat uh, anachronistic, quite anachronistic music. Uh, so the, most of the music in in uh, Rogue Heroes is the work of ACDC, uh, one of my favorite rock bands. Uh, so it has that kind of like swagger to it. 
But uh, I know you checked it out as well after multiple badgering text well, messages. Explain also for people where they can see it because it, well, it's not the simplest. So it's crack. on. It's a co-pro between Epics and BBC, or it's a BBC show that Epics picked up over here. You may have Epics on your cable package. I would say that the easiest way to do it is that I have found is just to go to your Apple TV if you have that. Uh, look up Rogue Heroes and sign up for Epics for. If you can cram it, you or, can do it in a week. Or Andy, first episode's free. You do not need to sign up for anything. Um, also, small spoiler warning: uh, at some point soon, Epics is going to turn into MGM Plus, I believe. Which is so, weird because it's so. But that's not Amazon, even though Amazon no. owns MGM now. Yes, okay. correct. Okay, boy, we're right back into it. Um, yeah. yeah. So here's the thing, Chris. Like, I don't. I, I'm sure many people who listen to this podcast listen to it primarily because they are CR heads and they love you, and they have probably in a quest to find out more about the man, the mystery that is Chris Ryan, because you keep a lot off mic. You know what I mean? Like you are, you are a man of shadows. You are a rogue unto yourself. Uh, they, they Google you probably. Uh-huh. And when you Google Chris Ryan, oh, yeah, or you Google Grantland, <laughs> or you Google any of us where the suggested next topic is Chris, like a picture of Bill Simmons might appear or Sean Fennessy, right? Or the Philly fanatic. But also under Chris Ryan, there's a picture of a guy who looks like an SAS rogue hero. And you click on that. And this is uh, the other Chris British, Ryan. British genre writer, Chris Ryan. What my I want to say is... In, my goal in life is know, to also be British genre writer, Chris Ryan. This is what I'm getting at. When I watched the first episode of the show, I was like, ah... We have finally fixed the multiverse. Both Chris Ryans are now a singularity. <laughs> because I think that if you dug into each Chris Ryan's brain pan from opposite sides of the Atlantic Ocean and just scraped off the top layer, yeah. threw it under a microscope, ACDC would play and the first scene in the desert with the fuel convoy would then un- unfurl, right? Yes. Like this is so... Chris Ryan core in all senses that I felt closer to you as a friend in watching it. I appreciated and you checking it out. No, I, which isn't to say I didn't like it. Because as I also said to you, I was a little sleepy and this is a fun show even if you are a little sleepy. It is just, you know, it, I, I just I just think it's a novel by one of the Chris Ryans and it's actually called like Mince Pies and M15s. Yes. You know, it is just so <laughs> every I single that thing the that you Chris love. Chris Ryan who is active, an active uh, novelist is a little bit more Rainbow Six style. Like he gets oh. he gets it gets it in with like the Tom Clancy heads. This is obvious. I think this is a book by Ben McIntyre called SAS Rogue Heroes or something like that. Yeah. Um, so it's it in has, Egypt. It's in the forties. Yes. Uh, yeah. Alfie Allen has had enough of gutting men, like in under moonlight, and decides he wants to go to Burma to help fight the Japanese. Like it's you know there are people, and I've just read a, a great. Chris, I've just read a great work of historical fiction as well. We could, uh, just a slight recommendation, a book called Five Decembers by James Kestrel. Really good. And You're these types of things. Me. I was like, what's up with you and reading? It was like, are you illiterate now? And you you, 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 you were like, oh, I just don't have time. My eyes. No, that's not what. Uh, well, okay, <laughs> sidebar. We could talk about my, my little reading issues. I'd like to talk about that with you because, you know, we haven't spoken in a minute. But just to say that, like, these, these types of stories are generally about people who are like, hmm, Contemporary, you know, what did Blur say? Modern life is a bit rubbish. Mm-hmm. If only there was a war I could go fight. And I hear those stories and I'm like, I don't, I don't relate to this. Right. <laughs> this is not, this would not be my path, you know? But I think there's something that it rings a bell inside of you, these types of stories. Yes. You know? 
Yeah, it really I mean, does. It does. I, I'm not really there for the war crimes so much as the camaraderie, you know. Uh, and there, they did. This show is pretty violent, so I will, I will say that. And it, I think somewhat swashbuckling in its uh, yeah. approach to violence. So if if you're looking for a, a slightly more consequential or sober uh, take on on life during wartime, this probably isn't the thing for you, but. It has style for days. You know, it's really like Knight really knows how to build out, especially in like this six episode structure that he has here for this first season. I think there's a second season on the way. It really has legs, you know, and I think that he also found three leads who carry a lot of um, a lot of the charm into it. You know, I mean, you, you can write the dialogue, but Connor Swindell says the word fuck in this show with yeah. such panache. That I, I, you know, I yeah. just really appreciate it. I, I th- this podcast has always trended a little bit anglophilic and oh. in its in its interests, you know. But I, I am having a moment it's where us and jam session are the two foremost sort of. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Um, and I, I've been having, I've been thinking this a lot. Like this show is almost entirely. I mean, obviously, it's about the British Special Forces, so no one in Tinseltown was like angling to get their take on this in front of the cameras first. This wasn't right. like a deep impact Armageddon situation. <laughs> this is their story to tell. But the the space within the British TV industry for this feels very vital and appropriate and good. You know, it's like it is exactly as you said. It's it just is what it is. It's so comfortable in its sort of swashbuckling skin, and that's very fun. It's not trying to solve any problems or undo past wrongs or even acknowledge any potential wrongs. It's just having fun, yeah. you know? And I kind of, I really did respond to that. I also felt, to your point about these actors, you know, the other thing, I don't want to step on what your next bit was, but I know that we both spent a lot of time watching um, Matilda the Musical on Netflix uh, in the late days of December, and which is very good. And as I was watching it, I was like, it's just, it's really not fair how much better English actors are than American actors. Like, it's just dumb. And it's cute that we pretend we have, and we have a couple here and there who can do some stuff, you know, and have some abilities and can do some things. But it is like watching the World Cup final Uh and then thinking like, that's so cute that we played in the same tournament and said we were playing the same sport because they're just better at it. And they just have so many of them who can sell each type of thing. Because I don't, again... I totally did just steal your thing about Rogue Heroes to talk about Matilda the Musical, but I just feel like, Chris, if I had told you Uh that there was a new movie starring uh, Stephen Elliott, Andrea Riseborough, and Emma Thompson, you'd be like, cool. Sure. Those are all amazing actors, and I can't wait to see what they're going to do next. And then it's Matilda the Musical. (laughs) So how many times did you wind up having to watch that? Andrea Riseborough is as good in this as she was in Zero Zero Zero. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's really intense that you could just do both and more. Uh, it's good. Did your kids demand multiple viewings? Yeah, it's now it's now trended into the like. It's just always you have on to put it on in the car and listen to it. And I actually think again, I think the musical is pretty good and the songs are pretty good. Well, I but feel that I did... way about uh, Highway to Hell by ACDC. Now it's <laughs> it's sort of been accompanying me on all of my journeys. After hearing it in the I, opening opening scenes of Rogue Heroes. I, I did have to say, after getting out of a 3.30 p.m. showing of Puss in Boots, The Last Wish yesterday, and you emerge into like cold, swirling, L.A. rainy darkness, and then the, the, the girls are like, now put on Matilda the Musical. And I was like, daddy needs a minute. <laughs> daddy needs not to be yelled at by fictional characters for 10 minutes. Um, uh, yeah. 
I checked out a couple of other things that I think we need to keep we need to keep our eyes on. Oh, okay. Um, so you know, at the end for the end of twenty two, it's always tough because obviously, for instance, last year or twenty one into twenty two, we had Station Eleven, and that had come out. They, you know, obviously that had been kicking around, and I believe Max. What did they do? Like three episodes, and then one, 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 or wasn't there like a kind of odd uh, rhythm to Let- the release schedule? Let's let's check Pat Somerville's Twitter feed because I feel like he's probably letting us reminding us what they did a year ago on it right now. I'm sure he's also monitoring uh, Aaron Rodgers' current haircut uh, very closely. Anyway, the uh, you know it, it's always easy to to like lose a show here and there at the end of the year. So sure. I, I do the cracks. obviously I got to catch up on Southside. I I've started the third season. I love that show more than anything. And then I I kind I, 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 sp- I spent some time with Southside. Did I you say? Yeah, I'm. Ca- I didn't finish the second season. I'm catching up. That show is just—it's so good. Yeah, and everyone should be talking about it, including us. And then, uh, are you going to fuck with George and Tammy at all? I decided no. I, you know what? At the end of the year, I made a resolution. George and Tammy, no. Avatar, no. Just going to so, move on. First of all, you were all all about going to see Big Jim. You couldn't wait to get the way of the water going through your veins. Uh, so you think you're going to skip that? At the multiplex yesterday, as I was okay, full disclosure, I did. I seated the children in the Puss in Boots screening, and and got the Skittles, and then I just realized that this was a two-hour film, and I was like, "Excuse me, girls, Daddy saw a draft beer concession, and the line wasn't so long, and I need a course light to get me." Speaking of way of water, I need that to get me through this film. And as I walked back from concessions the second time, some people were coming out of. I believe, hour six of Avatar 2. And someone said, this is a direct quote from a paying consumer as they took off their 3D glasses. It's when they learned the way of the water, that's where it lost me. Yeah. That's Vox Populi, baby. If that, like, that's, that's, if that loses you, how can I, in good faith, enter into a movie with that title? If you're going to see a three-hour film mm-hmm. in the theaters, please go see about one. Wow. I really loved it. I just it, it it loses a little bit of esteem towards the end, which it's also built into the plot that it would lose steam towards the end. But it is really, really like quite an achievement on a lot of levels. I'm shocked by this. This has really thrown me. The year I mean, Babylon. I, I'm not even like I, I would say I'm a fan of Damien Chazelle's stuff. I, I actually like really liked First Man quite a bit. I obviously love Whiplash. I had some mixed feelings about La La Land, but this is just a a tremendous like thrill ride. And um, Sean and Amanda did a great podcast about it the other day. They did one on Babylon and white noise, which I also saw and also very anxious to hear your, your takes on on white noise. Um, But yeah, with George and Tammy, it's just crazy that Michael Shannon and Jessica Chastain are top lining a limited series, you know, drama about George Jones and Tammy Wynette. And I'm, I'm kind of like, I'll either get to it I want or I won't. I guess I'm not like to be to be honest, not a huge like. I, I just don't have a lot of curiosity about about those characters personally. Like, so it's not like I've been waiting all my life to see their their lives dramatized. But it's just strange, especially at the end of the year. But I know so I know a lot of people have en- have enjoyed it. Um, Wait, can I go? Can I just stand Babylon for a second? Because before we started recording, you said something that I I need to make you accountable for. Okay, just like the officials in Maricopa County. <laughs> You were like tough beat for Damien. Yeah, because like, that movie made eleven million. Chris, I look. I've said. I think we ended the year with me being like, 
don't worry about financial success of things like support art. So that is still basically my, my, that's my bread and butter, right? Yeah. But I have never seen a more I'm, guaranteed. I'm supporting art. You're supporting the Coors Light Corporation. I, it was, it really helped, Chris. It really helped. I have never been more certain of a catastrophic box office failure than a Babylon. And I am not in charge of anything. Like, it is so crazy to me that people are like, wow, this three-hour movie about Hollywood snorting itself that features an elephant shitting on someone lost money in this economy? Like, what? paint me a picture, like one of your French girls, in which this movie is somehow a success, financially. Again, it might be good. I'm going to see it, and I'll argue the other end of it. But the people are like, oh, my goodness, if it can happen to Damien, it can happen to the rest of us. What? What are we doing? I do wonder... Yeah. Whether or not, generally speaking, so like I, so many people are so now like keyed into, hey, if I'm going to spend my time and my money doing something, I want to have a sense of what I'm getting myself into. And saying that it's full of virtuistic filmmaking and that the performances are great and that it sounds great and that it has this incredible energy to it, there's not like a plot to Babylon. It's about the rise and fall of these people from the 1920s to the 1950s as the uh, silent film era ends and the talk talkie era begins. And the way that Hollywood chews up and spits out the people who make the, the magic that we all love, right? I wonder whether or not if it was about like this silent film star is trying to get one last great silent film made before everything changes or like right. th- there is no singular like driving plot engine right. or thing that the entire story hinges on it hinges on a million things so to say it's like it's like goodfellas or wolf of wall street but hollywood i don't i i'd almost be interested to see what would happen if wolf of wall street came out and dicaprio aside and scorsese aside like if Wall Street, if it, Wolf of Wall Street came out, it was just like, yeah, it's about the rise and fall of this traitor. Like, do people need more of a hook now? Well, also, isn't Wolf of Wall Street funny? Because my sense is, I, Damien Chazelle has never struck me as like a laughs guy, right? Uh, it's funny, like behaviorally, it's not funny, like the lines aren't funny. Like, I wouldn't say it's got like a lot of knee slapper punchlines. I, I, I just am in, I'm just, I, I'm very confused by like the decision making behind budgets and what movies are getting made and what like it just is so bizarre to me because I think I am not Joe Popcorn I'm Dr. Joseph R. Popcorn the third in the sense that like I went to graduate school and I study this stuff and gun to my head I can't I, I think Amsterdam and Babylon are the same movie right you know what I mean like like Margot Robbie worked with two serious let's say like intense male directors to make period romps in which right. she ostensibly plays the same character and they're released within two months of each other and they both lose more than the GDP of Portugal. <laughs> like I, I, I just need like, I need Jonas Sarah from the times. I need the Hollywood fixer. I just need someone to be like, what are we so doing do you, right do now? Do you think like the next time Margot Robbie uh, walks into like an office in Hollywood and is like, all right, guys, it's the 1920s and I play yes. and then it'll just be like the, the Dr. Evil, like Will Ferrell scene. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes, I, I, I just am very confused by all of it. But I also think that I, I'll leave this to Sean and Amanda or maybe we could do another home and home crossover pod because I don't understand this Oscar season at all. Now, we will do, I know we've talked about this. I, I've seen a bunch of the movies. We've sort of alluded to the fact that we've each seen some of the movies. I haven't seen 
uh, Babylon or white noise, which I think are important to check in on. So I will, and mm-hmm. we will do some sort of our feelings about these movies, but it's a very weird season to me. And it, it's partly the kind of stuff streaming, stuff's not streaming, you know, world that we all live in now, but also the sort of clawing back to figure out what is a movie and how you should see it and what we're aiming for. It, like, because we, I, I asked you, I was like, well, what are the front runners now? And I've heard people say, and this is for Oscar stuff, you know, which is generally why there have been movies, these types of movies released at this time of year. And I've heard everything from Top Gun Maverick is going to win Best Picture mm-hmm. to, oh, The Fablemans has it in the bag. Now, I thought The Fablemans was shockingly bad. And I look forward to saying this more publicly and having a conversation about it. But more publicly I also than like, what you just did. Yeah. Just like, Kaya, Kaya, redact that. Kaya, turn the TikTok camera on. <laughs> turn it off. <laughs> but like, I, I, I don't think, I, what world does that win Best Picture when it's like, it's not, it's not successful. It's not critically adored. It's just the thing that has the shape and feel of a movie that's supposed to win Best Picture. So does Babylon. I mean, Babylon right. is about Hollywood's greatest interest, which is itself. And it's yes. a movie star, multiple movie stars. And right. is... I'm to ch- check the Q rating on Margot after this. After no, but Brad Pitt's but a movie star. Margot Robbie is, is in yeah, sure. big movies. I mean, I, I think... Got, yeah. uh, I, I, I'm being snarky about that. No, I, I just think... Uh, there's a version of the award season that's Top Gun, every, everything, everywhere, all at once, uh, right. and Glass Onion, like just theoretically, and that's like movies that lots of people have seen and movies that yeah. lots of people have lots of opinions about and care about deeply, but typically aren't the Tar Banshees of Inisherin Fablemans yeah. level move the whale movies that people are like. I think actually throwing all the hosannas at and giving all those sort of lead up awards to. So I, I guess, and this is this is a podcast, so it's subjective. So I'm allowed to say stuff like this because obviously I'm very biased. This is personal opinion, but of everything you just said, like Tar and Top Gun, I think are of the best movies that I saw last year. Yep, and those would make sense to me, even though they couldn't be more different uh, in a best picture conversation because. I'm not only did I deeply love them just on a subjective level, I feel like they they accomplished their goals, you know, as cinema, as 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 movies. They just did what they set out to do and they did it spectacularly. And obviously they were not setting out to do the same thing, although I would pay any amount of money to see Kate Blanchett play Maverick. I, <laughs> I, or fucking play the plane. I mean, I would just love her to be in that universe. But yeah. Both movies about cancel culture. You know, thank you. Let's keep doing this. Both the na- movies the Navy featuring tries to cancel Pete Mitchell. <laughs> Lydia Tarr would have been more successful if she had had a Hondo in her corner. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's. I think I mean, Nina Haas so, is supposed to be that, but like, yeah, I think that definitely. Nah, Hondo's more loyal. Um, you want to talk a little bit about Glass Onion? A little bit, yeah. Because I, I spent some time on the Netflix service this this off season. Uh, I checked out Kaleidoscope, which is something I'd like Did to you? chat with you about. Yeah. So Kaleidoscope is this show from Eric Garcia, whom I think if you know his name, you probably know him as the writer of Matchstick Men, which is a uh, beloved Nick Cage movie from a while back. And he wrote this heist drama for Netflix called Kaleidoscope, starring Giancarlo Esposito and Paz Vega and um, Jai Courtney, a bunch of people. And I guess I'm trying to think of like how I would describe it doesn't really matter. The point, the really like the most important part about it is it is a heist drama 
with like a kind of CBS-y sheen to it so far, as far as the episodes that I've seen, I've seen two. It's very like palatable. The whole hook with it is that you can watch the episodes in any order. So each episode is named after a color. There are, you, you can just watch it in the order that Netflix has up, or you can go random. You can choose, there's a really good, Keith Phipps has an article up on Vulture about like all the various ways one could watch it, including mm. the way he wished he, he wished he had watched it, which is what I am following. But it's, I'll definitely be, I'm curious to see if it catches on, if it becomes a thing, which, you know, sometimes you can just tell by word of mouth and sometimes you can just see from the Netflix TV, you know, the, the top 10 that they have. So I, I watched that and I, I, I'd like to chat with you about that more extensively at some point, but Glass Onion's really been the, the sort of, the, the sort of crown jewel of Netflix over the last couple of weeks. You had mixed feelings to say uh-huh. the least, about Knives Out. Uh, yes. Where are we at with the with the Benoit-verse now? I always struggle talking about these movies because I am a supporter of everything surrounding them. Like Ryan Johnson as a filmmaker, the idea that... Uh, an older, established, beloved genre could be reinvigorated, could be resurrected, that movies can and should be fun, that movies can and should take big swings and big chances and try to get groups of people together to enjoy them. Like I, The spirit behind all that is tremendous. And I think we said on this pod, like I, I wish that I had had the opportunity to go see this in the theater and I was reading A.O. Scott's review in the Times was the same thing, where he's just basically like, I saw this in the theater with people and everyone was laughing and hanging on the same things. And that was a joyous experience that we don't have a lot of uh, anymore. Um, I certainly didn't have it in Puss in Boots, The Last Wish yesterday, mm-hmm. especially once the cores ran out um, <laughs> many, of the entire, of the cor- entire theater. <laughs> cores did you train? <laughs> Garcon, keep them coming. Is that you? Corporal uh, Hondo. What do they what do they um, call Garcons in Colorado? <laughs> Hondo, probably, yeah. They call them Hondos. <laughs> yeah. Um that said, I am not a fan of the movies. Right. I, I don't know. I'm just trying I, I'm trying to be delicate and be polite about it, but I they rub me the wrong way. Particularly this one, it had a it has a a, a a sort of a tone and a swagger and a winky winky, we're all laughing at the same things thing that I I didn't understand where it was coming from because I didn't find it particularly funny. Um, I didn't, I I didn't, maybe it would have been different in a theater, but I felt like I was, I'd walked into the wrong party and I did not enjoy the experience. I disliked this movie in comparison to Knives Out. Uh, I I like- Yes, I I liked it less. I would say that. I didn't have like a bad time watching it. I watched it with my mom- uh, I thought that she was a pretty good litmus test, whereas like in the middle of the movie, a lot of the mystery is essentially like unraveled, which is totally fine. Like I think that there's been this weird like argumentative discourse about like whether or not it's funny or whether or not it's a good mystery or what it's supposed to be. And yeah, I like leaving all that aside, I think that for me, the first knives out was here's a bunch of people stuck in a house together, drawn together over this, obviously, this fortune that's up for grabs, but they have to be together because of they're a family, right? Like that they're, mm-hmm. despite their differences, they're linked by this, by these familial bonds. I had no idea why anybody in this movie like knew one another, aside yes. from 
apparently they're all hustlers and and disruptors who used to hang out at a bar and then all had these uh, exponential growth periods where they became governors and scientists and whatever, except for the Janelle Monae character. So I thought like I, that always just felt like static to me, whereas I was like, why, why would this person, this person, this person, and this person be friends with each other at all, much less later into life. And then also all revolve around this Edward Norton, Elon Musk character. But, uh, you know, I was, one of the things that hit me about it and I was reading, uh, honestly, this is pretty pathetic, but I was reading a blog post about a podcast interview that Todd Field had done. You had a great, 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 great vacation. (laughs) We're talking about like an hour ago. Todd Field was talking about his never, never realized adaptation of Jonathan Franzen's Purity, which he was going to make with Daniel Craig, Mm. of all people. And uh, the podcast, I think it was on uh, Happy, Sad, Confused, the podcast host, Josh Horowitz, is like, well, would you ever go back to it? Would you guys, now now that he's done with Bond and you're Mr. Tar, would you ever go back to it? And uh, Todd Field was like, no, you know, the things that seemed prophetic about it when we were mm-hmm. working on it are now, I think, would be too cute, you know? Uh, and I thought that Glass Onion, maybe through no fault of its own, had a little bit of that. And I think we're, I'm still struggling with like how Hollywood reflects the last couple yes. of years. And it really has nothing to do with the COVID stuff as much as like the way everybody talks to each other in this movie like they are just tweeting. Um, and that that really did throw me off. I also like, I'm trying to like keep in mind that like these this is not supposed to be eight and a half. Like it's not supposed, to, I think that yeah. these are fun jaunts. And I within them being like genre movies that are supposed to really please an audience, I think that there's a lot to be taken from there. Like, Johnson has done extensive interviews about all the films that he screened for, you know, and thought that was thinking about and to catch a thief and different lenses. He was, I mean, like he's obviously a very serious filmmaker having a lot of fun. This one just didn't work for me. I think that you're, it's tough to kind of put your finger on it, but I think that what you said about it feeling less like a living, breathing, adventurous movie and more like scrolling through Twitter at times even if you follow very clever people, is accurate to me. It I, it did not feel lived in or alive. It felt like it was commenting on the comments. It felt like it was replying to itself. Its objects of satire and derision did not feel particularly interesting to me, to be mm-hmm. honest. They felt like people who would might be interesting if you were still looking at Twitter. You know what I mean? I just feel like, you know, like, men's rights disruptor influencers on TikTok like actually don't have a role in my life you know and probably just, aren't friends with the governor of Connecticut no the the would-be governor of Arizona <laughs> yes in our just and righteous world yes so it just felt it it felt very broad in a way in a story, type of story that I felt needs to be tighter and more specific I, I don't know look again one of the reasons why this is sort of hard to to jump into is because I don't have a single I don't I don't have a single real negative feeling about anybody involved in this, you know. I I I really am glad that this if if it continues and I guess you know at least Netflix bought another one of these it's as part of the original you know splashy purchase to take it out of theaters. There's going to be more of these people are enjoying them and 
you what you said is maybe the best way to leave it. Like a very talented, serious minded filmmaker is having getting a ton have, of fun. Is, yeah. is having fun, and I generally applaud that. Um, and I think that you're right. There was something about I didn't love Knives Out, but I I was perfectly happy to sit there and 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 track it and twist and turns and look at Chris Evans' sweaters. Like that was. I'm not. I'm not a monster. I'm not totally immune to it. This one just was felt a little bit sour to me and a little bit lost in the sauce of its own game. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Hey there. You know that Hulu has movies, right? Well, if you didn't, we're here to tell you Hulu has movies. Hulu has acclaimed movies like All of Us Strangers starring Paul Meskel and Andrew Scott, Suncoast starring Woody Harrelson and Laura Linney, and Cat Person with Amelia Jones and Nicholas Braun. So head over to Hulu if you like movies because you guessed it, Hulu has movies. Oh, hold up. Smell test. Go ahead. Sniff those pits. Now, your bits. Feet. Toes. Come on. Could be fresher, right? It's all good. Old Spice Total Body Deodorant Spray is gentle enough to use all over your body, giving you 24-7 lasting freshness with daily use, from pits to toes and down below. So every smell test gets a... (sighs) Shop for Old Spice Total Body Deodorant. This episode is brought to you by the Disney Bundle. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new exciting movies and series, all for one low price. On Disney Plus, join the ranks of Captain Marvel, Captain Monica Rambeau, and Ms. Marvel as they team up to save the universe in Marvel Studios' The Marvels and embark on an adventure into the futuristic world of Iwaju. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone, in the award-winning film Poor Things. And school is back in session for the beloved teachers of Abbott Elementary. The Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. They're better together. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. In other Netflix news? Yeah. Let's let's talk about that. They canceled 1899. Mm-hmm. And uh turn the TikTok camera on, Kaya. Cause I wanna I wanna mark this as mm-hmm. what I wonder whether this is the first of like what's the over under 10? 10 things that we get to when we get to this time in 24. If we're gonna be like, wow, they really like Hollywood got cutthroat in 2023. If something wasn't working financially or for Netflix, whatever the fuck that means, you know, like if they weren't getting the impressions from the Iberian like demographic that they needed or like, you know, Mm -hmm. like whatever it is that they decided it didn't play in India or something like or here, they would they cut bait on a show that I was under the impression was like, if not a flagship show was, hey, we spent a lot of money on this international television show that should play in a ton of different markets. And I believe 
a lot of the tech, like the volume style, mm-hmm. sh- like shooting that they did. I don't know if Netflix owns that or provided. I all I remember was that in the making of Dark, in the making of eighteen ninety nine, which was from the producers of Dark, which Netflix aggressively gave a three season, you know, opportunity to tell its entire story. I was like, this eighteen ninety nine is going to be a pretty big deal, and the whole value proposition for Netflix as as a as a platform in general to me is things can catch on you know like you see it all the time when you're watching when you're looking at their rankings and then all of a sudden like Emily the criminal is like you know obviously like in the top 5 movies it's, because people are searching for Aubrey Plaza right like things can catch on in so many oh, different I thought, ways I thought that was the new season of Emily in Paris no like Emily dark, in Paris maybe season. maybe people are also searching for Emily in Paris and they're like mm-hmm. oh I guess she's a criminal now but 1899 is the kind of show that people would have found, I think, eventually, uh, for a variety of reasons, especially just through word of mouth. And I'm surprised, you know, I didn't think it worked as well as Dark, but I'm surprised that Netflix is cutting bait. And I wonder whether this is just one of those, like, it is not cost effective for us to make this show. I, I was shocked by this decision. I have not finished the first season. Frankly, I don't know if I will now. Um, because to your point, like it was not nearly as compelling as Dark. Uh, maybe for some of the same reasons that Glass Onion wasn't as compelling as Knives Out. I mean, you take the family part out of it and it's just a bunch of random people put in a circumstance. It's hard to feel the emotional pull, especially when it's so when when plot is so paramount to these guys in the way that they tell stories. Right. Um, but but that aside, I profoundly don't understand what they're doing. Netflix. And I would love to get some intel on this. We never know the whole story, even when we report things or read reported things that presume to know the whole story. So it's probably worth always reminding ourselves of that. It could be that there is some, you know, some interpersonal issues. I'm I'm not trying to like throw gas on a fire. I'm just saying you never know the real reason why things have happened. And if they don't make sense from our perspective, there might have been stuff going on behind the scenes that we don't know about. So that's possible. But assuming it wasn't, assuming it was a fine, if expensive production, what are they doing? Mm-hmm. Because this, to me, and in publicly in the press, presented as Netflix saying, this is the business we're in now. So to, to circle back to, to your thing, these guys that created Dark, that was the first German language original in the service when they were doing theirs, like, y- you get a show and you get a show in each region as they were building themselves globally. It was a huge hit and it was a model show for their global expansion because it played in multiple countries, right? And these, and and I, I don't have their names in front of me. I wish the, the creators of Dark, married couple whose name is not in front of me, I, I'll, I'll call it up. But they proved that they could deliver uh, a tightly plotted and produced genre story. So then it's announced that they're giving them their next big uh, opportunity is going to be a model for how they want these sorts of international productions to go in the future. And it was a huge investment in a studio with the volume that they could shoot an international show that was designed to play in all the markets that Dark played in, if not more, by bringing together actors from across Europe, consolidating production almost entirely on stages, the way The Mandalorian shoots. This was their... It, it, it did what they'd said it was going to do. Was the show good, bad, fine, growing? Who knows? But it was, by all accounts, this is what they intended to do with it. Yeah. And so the fact that then they pull the plug and they're like, nah, we're kidding. When they clearly only have four weeks of data. Now, was their data concerning? Was it not trending enough? Was it, you know, 
should they have cast Aubrey Plaza as one of the Spanish dudes? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not in their heads, but like, I, it's really confounding. We 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 we've come we've become comfortable with the idea of them cutting off shows that are growing or attracting fans in a more old fashioned yet and thus not Netflixy way, like like a Glow, for example, sure. which you know doesn't cost the catering budget of a show like this. But this is the new model of show. I don't understand the value, not just in terms of cutting it short now, but also what value does the first season have on their service now? Right. They, they, they just seem so overly committed to the, the facility, the stages, the actors, the story. The ever, they must have written the second season, if not all three seasons. I'm sure that they plotted it so, out because they said in their, it, um, the, the creators said in their Instagram announcement that they were like, we had, we had hoped like Dark to tell this story over three seasons. So I can't imagine they were like, we'll let you know when we know. I'm sure that they So, so they it's, it's Yanya, Yanya Fries and Baron Bo Odar, their names, and the married couple that make the show, write and direct it, produce it. Um, you've committed so much to this already. So now you're cutting off the present, but also the future, because say you bite the bullet and pay for two more seasons and it's not as great as you want or it's not getting the ratings that you want. Those three seasons exist forever on Netflix and yeah. someone's going to be watching them. And presumably if someone starts season one, a percentage of them, a not insignificant percentage of them, will watch the next two also. Well, hell, Andy, I mean, like if you, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot of people out there who are like, I guess I shouldn't watch this because yes. I'm not, it's going to end on a, like a cliffhanger that never gets resolved. Yes, that's the other thing. Like this is the sort of behavior you see when the studio and the streaming service aren't the same. Right, two different people own it, and so they're not both committed in the same way. Like th- this is the sort of thing that we we've seen shows get cut off, you know, unexpectedly or dumped, or when strategies change. But Netflix made the show for Netflix, so what is their strategy? I, I just have no idea, and I, I I wait for smarter minds or industry watchers to let me know, and then translate it from German. Um, do you want to wrap up by talking about uh, the wrapping up of Fleischman is in trouble? I really do. Um, so. Speaking of slightly confounding, I, I don't know. Why did they release this show when they did? If only because it's an incredibly worthwhile program. You and I, I think, I mean, we haven't talked about the, how, we, how it ended, but I think we were both big fans. Mm-hmm. I've, you know, I've t- we've talked to other people who we like and admire and respect and trust in the industry, and people are really onto it. People really admire it. I think people broadly are like, we're so glad a show like this got made. Um it narrowly missed our top tens. I think it was on Sam's or would have been if he had finished it. Why did the why did they air it so that the last episodes just fell off a cliff into the holidays? That just strikes me as odd when they have something that's good, particularly something that got really interesting at the end. And I so broadly speaking, really worthwhile show, both for what did they, they put air on the screen the and also two first, or has it always been a week weekly release? I believe the first two were available first. Sometimes FX is a, a little Catholic, but I admire it. You know what I mean? Like, I think it no, makes... It, that's the only Catholic thing about Fleischman is in trouble, I, by the I way. I think they're, like, they, they're just like, we're putting this up once a week. It, you know, yeah. Like, I think that there are, the bear went up in, t- in its entirety, right? Like, different... Yeah. But, what, did the old man drop three or two? They, they dropped the two. They dropped the John Watts episodes and then uh, and then spun it out weekly. And I, I like the weekly thing. It's just more the timing in the year, in the calendar year. I wonder if it's bubble brain for us and we're like, why did they do this? And other people are like, great, I can watch Fleischman is in trouble while I'm like waiting for like my flight yeah. to take off or something. You know what I mean? Like, I think that there's... You might be right. A, a lot to be said for holiday bumps in 
you know, if you if you're behind on this, catch up while you're home. If you know, I I, I agree with you. I don't think it did great for it's being windowed into people's top tens. Although I guess critics could have just watched all the episodes if they wanted to. Um, I, I I suppose I'm more thank, thankful that it didn't come out in that yeah. barrage of pre Emmy stuff in the spring anyway. So I yeah, that's I think probably right. It, it, I think it did what it was going to do. And I think that it's funny that we're talking about a show about like a guy having a midlife crisis and a woman having a midlife crisis and their kids in New York. And they like almost as if it's like, what a brave bet to make. You know what I mean? Well, like, I feel like it was. Yeah. I feel like it was. And they had to execute on such a high level to compete, to almost prove itself worthy, even though, as we said when we first talked about the pilot, that like this this was mainstream entertainment in 1982, and now it is not. And so I am thrilled that it exists, full stop, and I'm thrilled that they spared no expense and they committed to really talented people and that everyone from Jesse Eisenberg, Claire Danes, Lizzie Kaplan, um, Adam Brody, Josh Radner, um, the directors, um, Darius, uh, Ferris and Dayton and Sherry Springer Berman and Robert Pulcini, and especially Taffy Brodus-Rackner, who wrote the novel and did a lot of the adapting herself, like, they all brought A-plus game. Like, it's a really just a quality production and in a really impressive way. My, bo- my so boy said, Radner came through at the end. Radner crushed the show. I thought he was phenomenal in very small uh, bites. But so I want to ask you, though, I did want to have a conversation about the last two episodes because... And I, I want to preface it by saying how much I enjoyed the whole thing. I really liked it. But I have questions. And I'm curious what your reaction were. Because there was a moment where I was like, oh, this show is operating on a level that I didn't anticipate and is brave isn't the word, but is more daring than I gave it credit for at the beginning. Like I would have been, to, to, to quote Toby Fleischman at least once a year, Dianu about it. You know, like that it was following him. And then we get the moment when uh, Libby, Lizzie Kaplan's character, sees Spoilers Rachel Fleischman. For, yeah, right. These are the, we're going to talk about the last few episodes. Yeah. Sees her in the park. And what has been clearly brewing is now brought fully to light that she, she's not well. Something has, gone, something has gone awry. And then we get to the seventh episode, Me Time, which fills in the gaps of Rachel's story. And all of a sudden, I had this moment where I was like, this is actually incredible genius jujitsu that the Fleischman that's in trouble isn't the one we've been following. That Toby actually has never been in peril. He's been going through some rough shit. He's been inconvenienced, yeah. Yeah, and dealing with himself and his demons and not demons, but his own roadblocks and his own emotional baggage. And he's been, but he's been pushing through. And as, you know, Lizzie Kaplan's narrator keeps framing it basically like, he keeps put he keeps putting one foot in front of the other and he stumbles, but he keeps going. And he's actually not in trouble, which is very much in contrast to his now ex-wife, Rachel, who is extremely extremely in trouble and is having a kind of a mental break. That's actually this um, the sequel is is uh, Fleischman is extremely in trouble. <laughs> no, it, the sequel is Fleischman <laughs> is in tr- two ruble. Like yeah. you know, it's it's the two and then R-U-B-L-E. Um and this episode is a powerhouse. It's an incredibly challenging watch at times. And it is why in, you know, 64 minutes, why Claire Danes took this part. Mm-hmm. It's also like a showcase for what Claire Danes is as an actor, which frankly, I don't know if any British actors can do. She is such a unique 
uh, emotional instrument. She is a primal scream of an actress. Yeah, she is. Yeah, and she doesn't fit in roles that don't allow her to scream or to at least sublimate the scream until it comes out. And so here it was, and it's just. I, I will say brave about this in terms of the performance. And at the end of that episode, right, when Libby confronts Toby about what she's learned and what she's seen, and the episode has treated Rachel's journey with like real grace, real thoughtfulness. And he's like, I don't have to care about that anymore because I'm not married to her. I was really impressed. I was just really impressed at the way the show had done the kind of rope-a-dope with who our heroes were and who was in trouble and who wasn't and perspective. Nothing in the finale changed that. I was, I was no less impressed, right? I think the, they even say this, like they make a text that like everyone is a jerk and a hero and everyone is complicated. Like that's kind of what the show is saying. Again, we shouldn't have to throw flowers for a show for saying something that is emotionally true, but you know what we do right? in 2023. But I was surprised the way the show threw the Subaru in reverse and backed out of the Rachel story to get to get us back into Toby, to do the long detour into Libby, and then sort of end with, well, maybe Rachel will come back. I I I assume a lot of this is is accurate to the novel, which I haven't read, but I was it was a come down for me from what I thought the show was going to do. And it surprised me. So yeah. that was a long preamble. I was curious where you were with all that because the the sudden detour into Rachel was, I was like, it didn't feel like a, oh, we have to settle the score before we can really get back to Toby. It felt full-bodied, fully invested. Oh, this is what the show has always been about. And it's about a guy who has the privilege and the, you know, and the ego to not have to notice. That's a really, so a lot to unpack there. I've been thinking a lot about adaptation over the last couple of weeks, especially after watching White Noise, um, which we'll chat about at some point, but is very much a monument to Noah Baumbach's like love of the novel, you know, in mm-hmm. some ways. And his love of a lot of different filmmakers. I think it's it's his most cinematic movie in a lot of ways. But uh, you know, it, it's it it's triggered a lot of like kind of thinking about like why people choose to adapt the stuff that they do and who cho- who adapts what and whether it's better mm-hmm. to have someone who's very worshipful or, or a fan of the of the work that they're adapting versus, you know, oh, I'm using this as source material or as like a baseline or I'm, you know, bringing out certain qualities but turning down some, some others. So obviously Taffy adapted this book. And I would say that over the probably last third of the series and especially the finale, the Libby character becomes the main character, mm-hmm. especially the POV character, and almost more importantly, the voice. And yes. I think that a lot of like the narration that almost became overwhelming for me in the last episode, and especially the Rachel stuff in the second to last episode where, yeah, Claire Danes is do- putting on a clinic of how to cry and scream. But a lot of what we're, our understanding of those scenes is narrated by the Libby character played by Lizzie Kaplan, which is this sort of stand-in for Taffy, I think. And so... I was, I, I liked it. I liked it a lot. Like I, and I was very moved by the entire series. And I, I was wondering what would have happened if it had been adapted by somebody mm-hmm. who didn't write the book and whether or not a, there would have been, I, I really don't need to know if Rachel is at the door at the end mm-hmm. of the night. I assume she is, but you know, I don't, I don't even, it doesn't matter. And it, I, I loved the fact that the, 
Fleischman is in trouble is Fleischman is a stand-in for we're all in trouble and everybody is going through their thing. And every time you think, you know, you're the only person who sees the truth of the world and understands the severity of all the emotions you're experiencing, it turns out that the person next to you on the bus or the person next to you in the bed or the person next to you in the restaurant is also having all the same feelings all the time. Mm -hmm. But it was, it was kind of odd or there was something a little bit that threw me off about going through all of the events in the last two episodes and constant, constantly being told how to feel about it or what it was mm -hmm. by this narrator character. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? And I think it probably works great in the novel. I, I thought it was charming to watch because Lizzie Kaplan is good and the writing is good. But it was almost... Um, not suffocating. It just pushed out some of like the air of the show. I agree. I think you're. I think it's a really interesting point about the narration because if you're living in a book, and again, sorry everybody, we have not read the book. Um, everybody, this is not like Game of Thrones, but I do mean I can't speak with any knowledge about how the book is even narrated. But if it is narrated by the Libby character, the idea of the Seth and Toby and even Rachel being potential reflections or windows or mirrors for Libby to make observations about her own place in the world. And you get a little bit of that. You know, when she talks about she was essentially sketching on Toby's singledom or his the tumult in his life because it was lively and it reminded her of being alive. I think that I think that, that is a little more consistent. I think the show did the best possible job of doing of managing all those different perspectives and relating to each of them and understanding them as they reflected back on Libby, but it's also a TV show. So we spend time with the other characters in a different way, specifically with Toby and then ultimately with Rachel, right? So it was harder to hold on to because there are these moments and it, it, when the Toby plot is sort of left aside to go home to New Jersey with Libby for the bulk of the finale, it's left with that moment of him being of, of like renewal, right? Like he is going to, he felt a moment of optimism. Yeah. Something had settled. He was going to get a better apartment. He was going to take the next real step forward and not be treading water in this way. And okay, that's good. He is someone who hugs people whose wives have just died. He does have some goodness in the same way that almost everyone in the world has goodness in them and can, and can perform it or legitimately feel it in circumstances. But I was kind of shocked that there was no actual reckoning is kind of a dramatic word for a show that was comfortable leaving us in the sort of nuanced space that is real life. But like the callousness that he showed towards the mother of his children, not throughout their marriage, because you could understand that, that was that, that path was well laid. Yeah. But in the spirit of them being, I think in her words, like co-captains of the ship you know, of parenting and that he just blew past that into online sexting and everything and then had an absolute no empathy for her complete terrifying breakdown and what that yeah. might mean if his children didn't have a mother anymore. That was an odd place to leave it. And then the suggestion that she would walk back through the door was confusing to me because I didn't, and I don't think the show necessarily intended to suggest that that would be a romantic reconciliation. Maybe as much as be her being like, let's let me like fill you in on what's been going on here. Yes. Yeah. I'll open the door to you and really hear you and see you as a person. And we can be co-captains of the good ship, these children or whatever. So maybe that that's all possible, but it, th th that was the moment. I just agree with you. I think, I think the, the tricky perspective things that the show really succeeded in pulling off, they got a little trickier. At the yeah. End. I, I mean, I, I, Ultimately loved it. And and I think that, you know what it was? was in my head, I think I built up the Claire Danes episode 
so much. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't at all a clip show or like a montage of stuff that we had seen already because, you know, we hadn't really gone to the yoga retreat. We hadn't seen her have mm-hmm. this essentially breakdown in her apartment where she's losing time and starts falling asleep in the park and is missing meetings and all these things. But do you know how like sometimes when you expect something and you're, it, it delivers, you're almost let down because you're like, that's what I thought it was going to be. You know what I mean? Cause like, there wasn't anything more to it. No, it w- had nothing to do with the plot. It was almost like, Oh yeah. Claire Danes, Claire Danes doubt. Of course. Yeah, like I didn't think right. that she was going to be, just like, oh, I'm having a romantic interlude and have decided to vanish from my family for the summer. You know, like, obviously something was happening. And in a weird way, I think you do wind up, to your point, start picking at, like, how come Toby just dropped the investigation into where his wife was? I mean, I know she's like, he's like, I guess he figures she's been to the apartment that she owns. So she's obviously just around and is choosing not to interact with her children or her ex-husband. I- I also think, and I would imagine this is more, you're just more able to articulate this in a book. He's, he, he's, he's never outside of his own head. Mm-hmm. He can be empathetic as a physician because he's comfortable in his position of authority in that role. I think the most... But all his friends are like, you, don't t- you, only, you only talk about yourself. You're and like, he does. He's yeah. a terrible friend, at least as from what we see. He just uses them. He he sketches on them, like the night out with Seth and everything. And and the fact that Libby's like, I love you. I'm like, I, I it, it, there's something dark hidden at the core of the show that we, with that line about, you know, your friends, your only true friends are, are the ones you meet in college. Hi, Chris. Because they, <laughs> it's almost like because they're repositories yeah. of of you, of you-ness and have known you. So it's really about yourself, not about empathy to the other person. The darkest, darkest, thing is is it's it's in voiceover which maybe underscores your point but when libby is describing rachel's circumstance when she was just like she she went to toby because he was going to love her and not abandon her and he spent their entire life threatening to abandon her Mm -hmm. because he wasn't happy with what she wanted and didn't see and the show does a very good second time i'm saying it on the podcast rope-a-dope of that right where it's just like these people are clearly awful and big money New York stuff is gross and private school and skiing and all this. That's a very uh, alienating world to most and is gross, but we didn't see it from the perspective of she wants this. So, okay, that's fine. That's a want. And he spent the whole time just smugly putting his middle fingers up, waiting for her to not be herself and to agree with him. Right. And that's no place for any kind of relationship. And I thought that was all really, really interesting. Maybe ultimately the TV-ness of it it's just too many balls in the air for a TV show. TV TV can't ever really do that level of nuance or like the the multiplicity of perspectives and voices. I think the way books can, um, books something that I love to tre- cherish reading. Chris, you do. Have, have I just I I love reading. And you definitely and have haven't lost your ability to put together words on a page and form a a meaning we, out of them. <laughs> we can talk about this on another podcast, but it was that I couldn't see out of my my eye holes. Anymore. For people, obviously, nobody knows what I'm talking about. I have for several months been asking <laughs> yes. Andy. I was like, oh, yeah. you know, if we have like a dead day where yeah. there's no show or whatever, we could always do a recommendations episode where we talk about music and books. And mm-hmm. I say, I've been reading this. And Andy has not responded and no. not responded. And then finally was like, I'm going blind <laughs> and no longer read. 
So it was Although worrying I do, me. I have to say, the, I, you, you, before you talk about what worries you, is when you said that, I was like, yeah, yeah. you continue to drive around Los Angeles. Well, because there's a couple things. There is enormous ego and then also like magical thinking in that. As it turns out, I did go to an optometrist for the first time and they were like, you are not uniquely experiencing macular degeneration like and losing sight in a spectacular way. You are in your 40s and you need reading glasses now. And I was like, how dare you? This body is a temple, <laughs> temple devoted to Pilates and potato chips. Um, so grudgingly, I did accept a prescription for reading glasses. By the way, my vision in distance and driving automobiles in Los Angeles, absolutely perfect yes. still. Still hot, yeah. Just Lewis Hamilton-esque. He's a, he, he drives cars, right? He does, yeah. Thank God, other okay. And so I got a prescription pair of reading glasses and it it really was like that part in the Matrix where he's just like, you've never used them before, Neo. I was like, holy shit, I haven't seen in years. What was the and book now, earlier that you were like, what was the, the book you were like, this piece of nonfiction that I wrote? Historical... Oh no no it's it's Red. fiction there's there's a it's a great mystery it won the Edgar Award for best mystery last year it's called 5 December's mm-hmm. hard case crime published it it's by James Kestrel which is a pseudonym but it's a mystery set in Hawaii and the Pacific between 1941 and 1945 it's awesome i had started it like 6 weeks ago and because as i turned out, as it turned out it just kind of hurt my face box to read. Like I just wasn't reading. And our old pal, David Jacoby, sometimes checks in and he's like, what should I be reading? And I was like, oh, I just started this book. Let's read it together. And he was like, cool. And he does what he always does. He texts me a photo of the cover having bought it 10 minutes later. Then in a normal amount of time, like 10 days later, he's like, just finish the book. Let's chat. And I was like, page 16, yawning in front of me. Anyway, thank you to the good people of Eyeglasses Incorporated. I read three and a half books on my winter vacation and I'm, I'm back, so happy. baby. You're back. I'm so back. maybe we'll do a book club sometime soon. I know, I don't think you're going to join me on The Passenger. So I'm reading the new Cormac McCarthy. You sure are. You, this is, your Soch persona now is just Cormac, Stan. I do like you, this. Let me tell you what happened last night. So okay. The Passenger is very good. It's about a diver, like a salvage diver who in 1980 goes, uh, I think it's in the, off the Gulf in, in New, like in Mississippi and like a plane is crashed and he drives down to go like salvage the plane and the people are still on the plane and mm. there's supposed to be nine people on the plane, but only eight people are on the plane and the black oh. box is missing. So that's the setup. There's also Good. like a whole other plot with this guy's sister uh, that I won't get into, but a conspiracy, you know, starts. Uh, this guy is like thrown into a conspiracy about the the plane and secretive government agencies that are, you know, putting liens against his bank account and chasing him all over. And at one point, he's hired this private investigator from New Orleans to work with him. And they have a series of uh, of meals and beverages together over the course of the book. And at one point, like for absolutely no reason, <laughs> the private investigator a.k.a. Corbett McCarthy, just gives a six-page monologue about the Kennedy assassination. (laughs) (laughs) And it starts, and you're just like, oh, I wonder if Cormac's got anything in the chamber about JFK. And reader, he did. Chris, this should be your new podcast identity. I am more convinced than ever, by the way, and I'm on the record, you know, you can listen to the JFK rewatchables. I'm I'm a big fan of of this topic, but... Man, Cormac makes a very convincing forensic case for why it could not be Oswald. 
I'm now reading to a degree that I'm remembering how we used to read. So for people who don't realize this, and we should end this podcast because I've left my children unattended in the house with a can of Pringles and a Nintendo Switch. But, you know, we, Chris and I like both got super into crime fiction and a lot of the books that we talk about on the pod and authors that we love around the same time and have taken many detours and we did Larry McMurtry. But I think that for me, reading has become something a little bit different than it was when we first met when we were like college students and English majors in the 90s. And we were like, we read big books because we're supposed to, right? So yesterday, during a lull in the parenting before Puss in Boots, I just took Don DeLillo's Underworld off the shelf, which I purchased at the college bookstore in 1997. Yeah, Yeah. And, you know, put on my glasses. By the way, shout out to our lovely, loyal listener at Warby Parker (laughs) in Silver Lake. It's very nice. She's been very helpful to me. And it's just like... Remembering that reading is also, he speaks in your voice, American. Yeah, And it's just like (laughs) describing the contours of the backs of the working men filing into the polo grounds (laughs) in 1954. And I was like, holy. Are you wiping tears away right now? (laughs) No, I'm just like, I just forgot that like there used to be, it just used to be a spinal tap, like 11 meter on writing. You know what I mean? And it's almost, I almost felt a little like I got a little hot and embarrassed reading this many adjectives in a sentence in an 800 page book. But like, maybe this is, this is our pivot, man. We're going to be like Netflix. Don't get it. Popular detective movies. Pass. Books. Cormac McCarthy, Don DeLillo, (laughs) Toby Fleischman, 2023. Let's get it. That's us. Uh, We will be back in no later than I think 48 hours. Big weekend. Uh, So we have Copenhagen Cowboy coming out on Netflix, which is the Nicholas Wedding Refn show that I'm very excited. We may it's get also a, the documentary that I made about myself yeah, uh, I know. and my trip there. Yeah, We may get a shock Sean Fennessy appearance on this podcast uh, to, to discuss that show. What? And then uh, Last of Us is coming up, a bunch of stuff. Maybe we'll hit Kaleidoscope if, if you catch an episode or two and we can talk a little bit about heisting uh, on Thursday. But I can't wait to be getting into TV. Thank you to Kaya. Back at it again for the 2023 term. <laughs> Uh, and she, uh, she, she was reelected unanimously for what it's absolutely. worth. <laughs> sort of the Pelosi of this podcast, you know, 100% holding power from Northern California for years on end. <laughs> bye bye. 